0: Well, good morning to you. It's wonderful to be here before you again. While the uh, many of the leaders are up in New Hampshire, as Akimo said, and we're looking forward to them getting back to their homes, Lord willing, sometime later today. I couldn't have help it, as I was watching that video, seeing all these high achievers, majors, lieutenants, sergeants, chief warrant officer, and I was a private first class. Now, there's a reason for that that we will not go into today (laughs) and forever, but it was a, uh, I think all of us would say what an honor it was to serve our country and so many principles that were instilled to us uh, live with us to this very day and uh, it's, it's, it's a great honor and privilege. We have got so much to cover today And I'm going to ask that we get right into the text. If you have a Bible with you, Colossians chapter 3. Jesus is the key to relationships in life. If you did not bring a Bible with you, it really helps uh, because the, the, the point up here as a pastor or a teacher is to point you to the word of God. And so if you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the chair in front of you, and it would be on page 984, page 984, where we see Jesus is the key to relationships in life. I'm gonna read just a few verses, and you can follow along, beginning in chapter three, verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing hymns with uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Then I'll just skip through the next few. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Father, do not provoke your children. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Verse 1, chapter 4 Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Rick Warren has said that Christianity is not a religion or a philosophy, but a relationship and a lifestyle. The core of that lifestyle is thinking of others as Jesus did instead of ourselves. It seems to me when we talk about relationships in life and thinking of other people, that nowhere should this social aspect of the new creature in Christ, the new man in Christ, be more evident than in the home. A.T. Robertson was a Greek scholar and professor and author, and he wrote Real Christianity is Both a Doctrine and a Life. Mere belief is dead without life as proof. Real spiritual life is impossible without vital contact with God and Christ. And our dealings with others become the final proof of our real connection with Christ. Now, we've been in Colossians for several months. And if you would just take the one theme, it's that Jesus Christ is everything. He's preeminent. He's sufficient. If you broke the four chapters down, you would say this, chapters 1 and 2, he talks about our position in Christ, how that we were identified with Christ on the cross, we died with him, we were buried with him, we were risen with him, and we're seated in the heavenlies with him. That is your position in Christ. But in chapters 3 and 4, he goes into what you and I would call the practice in Christ, so that deals with where we are right down here, living day in and day out. So the third chapter begins with those powerful words. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above, and set your mind on things that are above, and not things that are on earth. For you are dead, and your life is hidden with with Christ in God. So here we are now dealing with the new relationship that we have in life since we've come to Christ. Pastor Rob really did a wonderful job in uh, moving us through verses 5 on down to verse 14 of Colossians 3, and if you'll notice, he took uh, a Sunday for each uh, two aspects of this, where he talks about the old man in verses 5 to 8. Now, what is the old man? The old man is simply our sin nature. When you were born and I was born as descendants of our first first parents, Adam and Eve, we were born with a sin nature. Every parent here knows you never had to teach your child to disobey or to do something wrong. It's part of who we are, our fabric. We have a sin nature, thus a propensity towards sin. But then when uh, when a, through a process usually, but at a point action of time, we come face to face with the reality that even though I am a sinner by nature and by choice, Christ died for my sins, was buried, and rose again. And if I trust in him as my Savior, he will forgive me all my sins and give me the gift of eternal life. And at that split second of my faith, I believe in Christ as my Savior, John says we pass from death unto life. And when we pass from death over to life, at that time, he also gives me a new nature. Sometimes it's called the new man. So that I'm given a new nature, a new man. And now he has also given me the Holy Spirit. And so I still have the old nature. Uh, God, it would be wonderful if God took away the old nature, but it's still with us. But we also have a, a new nature. And now I go through life, And I've got choices to make. Just like that choice when I believed in Christ as my Savior, I now have choices to make uh, every day. But it isn't long after we're a Christian, we realize there is a a war that is raging within us. Now in verses 5 to 8, you'll notice he says, put off the old man. And then in verses 9 to 14, he says, put on the new man. Okay. A converted Indian explained it this way. And it's just in very simple terms, after he had come to know Christ, he says, I feel like I have two dogs living in me. There's a mean dog and there's a good dog. They're always fighting. The mean dog wants me to do bad things. The good dog wants me to do good things. Then he asked the question, do you know which dog wins? Answer, the one I feed the most. And there it is. What am I feeding? And whatever I'm feeding upon is going to be a decisive factor in the choice that I make of yielding to the new man or to the old man. Now, he's going to get into family relationships here eventually. He's going to talk about about husbands and wives and parents and children and masters and, and bond servants. But you cannot be the husband, the wife, the child, the parent, the employer, the employee that God wants you to be, unless you, first of all, lay hold of and appropriate the truths in verses 15 on down to verse 17. And so in these verses, he tells us three things that we need. We need the peace of Christ to govern us. We need the word of Christ to indwell us and into our minds and hearts. And then we need, uh, obviously, the name of Christ and his power itself. Now, let's look at the first one, which uh, we call the peace of Christ, and it's found in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. Now, a few weeks ago, when we were in Colossians 3, we talked about the words imputed righteousness. Don't let the word scare you. To impute simply means... It's really a, a an accounting term for those of you who are accountants. It's like taking from the debit side and putting it over to the credit, or taking from the credit and putting it over to the and what God did, the moment I believed in Christ as my Savior, He imputed the righteousness of Christ to me. He not only forgave my sins, he imputed, so now I am clothed with the righteous robe of Christ. And every time God looks at us from that time point, we are perfect in the Lord Jesus Christ because we are identified with his death, burial, his resurrection, we're actually seated in heavenly places in Christ right now with the Son of God at the right hand of the Father, spiritually speaking, because we have the imputed righteousness. But now in these verses, what he's gonna do talk about, he's gonna talk about another, robe. It's the robe of what I call imparted righteousness. And the impartation of righteousness is what happens every day as I yield to the Holy Spirit of God, the Word of God, and through my new nature, and I make godly choices that bring glory to God. Now, he says here in verse 15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, this is a word that literally means to act as an umpire. We all know what an umpire does in games or sports or activities, okay? And the umpire in this case is the peace of Christ. So I think what he's saying is this, every time I make a decision in life, every time I am brought to this point where I'm going to make a choice or a, a decision, I have to ask myself, is The decision I'm about to make, will this bring peace to my heart? Will this bring peace to my soul? In my home relationship, will this bring peace to those around me? Blessed, indeed, are the peacemakers. So that peace of Christ, I need to discipline my mind, my heart, and my will that I want the peace of Christ, not only the peace with God, but the peace of God that will rule my heart, umpire my heart. Number two, he talks about uh, this matter of the word of Christ or principles and intellect. Notice in verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You have heard me say, if, if you've been here when I preach, not that I expect you to remember it, but I often will say something to the effect that that this is the most the greatest tangible blessing God has left his people, his word. And what I need to do with this word is I need to take this word and fill my mind and my heart. I need to study it. I need to listen to it. I need to memorize it. I need to think it. I need to recite it. I need to live. It. Why? These are God's thoughts. Now, what God wants us to do is, is in the progress of the Christian, is learn to think like God thinks. And the only way I can do that is through this, uh, through this holy word. And so you must let the word of Christ run your your you. Now, I'm a little bit older than most of you, younger than a couple of you, uh, but not many of you. Now, this wasn't for the past. This is for me today. Right now, I'm trying to memorize the book of Colossians. Now, let, let me just say this. I find it a little bit more difficult to memorize today than I did 50 years ago. But I'm not going to give up. Why? Because I need the word of Christ to dwell in me richly. Now, if you're a student of the Uh, of the New Testament, you know that Ephesians and Colossians are very closely related. Theme of Colossians is the supremacy of Christ. The theme of Ephesians is not so much the supremacy of Christ, but it's the body of Christ submissive to Christ. So in Colossians, you've got Christ. In Ephesians, the emphasis is on you, the body uh, of of Christ. But if you would trace it through, you would see the six chapters of Ephesians and four chapters of Colossians are very similar. Now, when you get to chapters 3, where we are in four of Colossians, if you would look at this chart and compare it with Ephesians five, if you just look down there, you will see he is saying almost the exact same words. For he says in Ephesians, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart uh, to the Lord. Giving thanks for all things, submitting one to another in the fear of Christ. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Parents, uh, uh, raise your children in the admonition of the Lord. Children, obey your parents. Uh, servants, obey your masters. Masters, be a good, uh, a good person to your servant. You see, almost everything is identical. Now, you know what's different? The only thing that's different is up in the top left and top right. It's the command that is given in order to fulfill what he's talked about in that litany uh, of phrases there. So in Ephesians, what's he say? be filled with the Spirit. If you're not filled with the Spirit, you're not going to be this kind of person. What's he saying, in Colossians? Let the Word of Christ, let this Bible, let the words of Christ just dwell in you, make their home in you constantly. Now, don't take a rocket scientist and understand this, that to be filled with the Spirit is the same thing of letting the Word of Christ dwell in me richly and to let the Word of Christ dwell in me richly is the same thing as being filled with the Spirit. Do you understand that? So the two go hand in hand and you've got to under. and if you apply, if you You are filled with the Spirit, and the Word of Christ is drawing you richly. Notice the first results. You're going to speak to yourselves in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. You're going to be filled with wisdom. You're going to be filled with thankfulness. You're going to be filled with with submission. Just think if every home had every member of the family living that kind of life. Just imagine what your home would be like. Everyone's thankful. Everyone's submissive. Everyone's got a song in their heart. Everyone loves the Lord. Everyone wants to serve and please one another, and that's exactly what God wants. There's a third thing, and that has to do with the person or the name of Christ or our will. Verse 17, he says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. Notice this third truth. it has to do with the centrality, with the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ in our life. So that you see, when we come to know Christ as our Savior, there's a new peace we have. There are new principles we start bringing into our life that will change the way that we live, the Word of God, the Word of Christ. And then there is a new person, and of course that person is the Lord Jesus himself. You know, sometimes people have a, a life that's going okay, and, and they know deep in their heart, they know something's missing. Or they look at another person, they say, that person's got something, I wish I had that something, I don't know. Or they see a couple, sees another couple, they say, "Wow!" I look at that home and I'm thinking, boy, I'd sure like to have, I don't know what they have, but they got something. No, it's not something, hit someone. Now, two weeks ago, I was uh, speaking out in New York State, and uh, where I had pastored uh, going back uh, to, to the early 70s. And there was a couple there, he's a retired pediatrician now, but I went back 45 years with, with him and his wife, Don and Joan. And I remember, honest to goodness, as though it was last time, I remember being in their home, and Joan was on my left and Don was on my right. They had three little children, beautiful kids, beautiful home, I mean just a nice home, nice people. But I remember going through the plan of salvation with them. They didn't know Christ as Savior. And you could just see the light coming on and the bells ringing, etc. And I'll never forget when I got through the plan of salvation, I looked at each of them like I do often when I go through the plan of salvation. I say, do you basically understand what I've said? Yeah, we understand. Do you basically believe what I've presented you from the Word of God? Yeah, we believe it. I said, I've only got one question to ask. Would you like to, by faith, trust Christ as your personal Savior right now? And I'll never forget, only time it happened, and I've worked with a lot of couples, Don moved forward, looked at Joan, he said, you know, honey, this is the one thing we're missing in our life. And both of them trusted Christ. That was 45 years ago, okay? 40, And they're still going strong for the Lord. What did Jesus Christ do for them? He took that empty space, that emptiness in their life and in their home, and he filled it with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you need that, if you sense, you know, Harry, that's, you're, you're talking to me, that's what I need, we would love to minister to you. Now, let's remember here, as we move on to the home, those are the principles. If you don't have, uh, if you don't have the peace of Christ, if you don't have the, the uh, word of Christ, if you don't have the name of Christ, then nothing more that I say is going to be of any benefit to you. You will not be able to follow what I say unless you follow these first three principles and appropriate them. Now, let's remember, when we're dealing with Colossians, we're going back 2,000 years. So I don't want you to think of your home today right now. I want you to think about a home uh, 2,000 years ago. In fact, Aristotle said 2,300 years ago there were three ingredients in uh, in any home. Number one, you had husbands and wives. Number two, you had parents and children. And number three, you had masters and slaves. Now, we, we usually take this master-slave and we apply it today to an employer and employee, and that's fair, as an application. But by interpretation, it was literally a master and a slave situation. So we want to we look at these, uh, these very quickly, looking first of all at the marriage. Now, here's a simple definition of marriage that might help you. And, there's, and remember, this is a study today. What we're doing is not a series on the home. I can't cover everything. That was the biggest frustration to me in, in preparing this message. I'm telling you, I had 20 pages of notes and I had to get them down to four. Chop, chop, chop is what the name of the game is, okay? And I had to keep reminding myself, we're dealing with Colossians. It's not a series on the home. So I can't say everything that needs to be said. In fact, I'll leave out saying things that I wish I could say that I can't because time doesn't permit it if you follow that. Here's a simple definition. Marriage is the union of two sinners. How's that? Is that fair enough? Marriage is the union of two sinners. Now, that brings hope and it's true of every marriage. 50 years from now, if you're still married, wife and I celebrated 51, guess what? I'm still married to a sinner of 51 years. Guess what? She's married to a sinner for 51 years. Marriage is the union of two sinners. I hope that what this does is give you some real hope in your marriage, especially uh, if you're thinking your marriage is, is uh, rather lost. Uh, let me add to that, though, this. Marriage is the union of two sinners in whom God's grace is at work. In other words, be realistic. It won't be perfect. Now, all of us when we got married, or at least most of us, if not all of us, I mean, that first day, that honeymoon, remember it? Uh, I mean, how glorious was that, right? How wonderful, I mean, that was paradise found, right? Then three days later, it was paradise lost, right? So, you know, you, you, you found it, you lost it. And, and then reality starts settling in, okay? And you realize what? I'm living with a sinner. And guess what your spouse is thinking? I'm living with a sinner too, and so the only way the two sinners are going to bring it together is by the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the new creation in Christ, who is now living with the peace of Christ, who is living with, with, with the word of Christ, and living with the name of Christ as the priority in, in his or her life. So the main point is this. Christian family life is a work of the Holy Spirit by God's grace and the life of those who seek his peace, his principles, and his person. Now, having said that, let's go and look at the relationship of wives and husbands. A relationship of wives and husbands so i'm picking it up at verse 18 wives submit to your husbands now listen as soon as i say that word wives submit i've lost half the feminine population here okay yeah. now i know listen when i did this i said you know our pastor is one wise smart pastor he knows when to go on a retreat to new hampshire <laughs> it's whenever you see that word submission uh, come into the, I mean, it's not exactly your favorite word, right? Uh, but we're going to deal with it, with, with, with it anyway. So he says, wives, submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord. Now, let me give us a, a, a simple definition of what it means for a wife in submission, which has as its counterpart the headship of a husband. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. This message of submission and headship doesn't go over very well today, even in evangelical Bible-believing churches. The spirit of our society makes it very hard for people to even hear texts like this in a positive way. Now, if that's a mission, what's headship? Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership. Servant leadership, protection and provision in the home. Men, headship is not a right to command or control. That is anathema to the scriptural teaching of how Christ is the head of, of the church it's a responsibility to love my wife as christ loved the church now quick through three quick thoughts on this submission number one submission does not mean inferiority submission does not mean inferiority jesus christ the son of god was submissive to his heavenly father he did his will but jesus was equal not inferior to god the father We believe in the historic conservative Christian doctrine of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three persons, one Godhead, and each one is equal to the other. And as Christ is submissive to the Father, he's still equal to the Father. And as the wife is submissive to her husband, that doesn't mean that she's not equal in worth to her husband as well. And so, submission does not mean inferiority. Number two, submission is not absolute. Submission is not absolute. The little phrase, as is fitting uh, in the Lord. wife submit to your husband, as is fitting in the Lord, means that a woman's ultimate allegiance and her ultimate head is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And other allegiances are subordinate to this one. So if a husband, I don't care if it's a Christian home or not. And by the way, this thing of submission still fits with a Christian married to a non-Christian, 1 Peter chapter 3. In fact, Peter says that's the way you're going to win your husband to Christ, is through your submissive attitude. That's another lesson all in itself. But what I want you to understand is this. Sometimes a husband, even a Christian husband, will ask a wife to do something that in her heart is against her conviction and against the teachings of the Word of God. Now, she doesn't have to be belligerent about it, but she can very graciously say to her husband, I can't do that. If I did that, I would not be loyal to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the Word of God. Let me tell you as a pastor that when I was a pastor 25 years, that I heard some of the most awful stories that I wish I could forget or wish I'd never heard of things that so-called Christian men ask their wives to do. I mean, it was, I, I can remember as though, again, it was last night, some of these things that come to my mind. And I'm thinking, how could a Christian husband ever do that? How could he ever treat her that way? That's not the love of Christ, that's that the headship of Christ. And it's all done in being the head of the home. And there comes a time where the wife has to say, I can't do that, and I will not do that. Thirdly, submission is loving. In Ephesians, the counterpart, it says, wives submit, and then it adds a word, to your own husbands. I think the idea of own here is to emphasize the personal, intimate, vital relationship. You're not just submitting to some indifferent, detached. other. You're not submissive to other men. Be submissive to your own husband. It's very intimate and personal. A Christian wife who loves her husband, who sees him as God's gift to her, who sees him as her own possession, will more easily regulate her conduct in harmony with that particular command. Wives, submit to your husband. Husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Let's move on to the husbands quickly. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. A few comments here. You can see there's a positive command and a negative. Love them. Don't be bitter or harsh. Love can very easily, very swiftly become bitterness. Be careful. It can happen to any of us. Look at love. What kind of love is this? It's a sacrificial love. This is the Greek word agape, which is an act of the will. What? That always looks out for the best of the other person. It always has the other person's welfare in view. When I love you, I am not looking out for what I can get out of it. I'm not not looking how it benefits me. I'm looking, how does this benefit you? Too many times that isn't the case in our homes. The love can turn to dissipation. I remember years ago I did a survey. I was leading a seminar for husbands and wives. And we had about 200 couple, 100 couples or 200 people. And I did just a little anonymous survey just to get the idea of feeling here. And I asked, I asked the woman there, I said, if there's one word only, you can only choose one word, that you want in your husband more than anything else, you're limited to one word, what would that be? And it surprised me because I hadn't thought of it that way. Of course, not being a wife or woman, maybe that's why. But the word that came out by vast majority was the word caring. The wife is saying, and then how many times I've heard that in the counseling room, I don't know, but the wife was saying, I just wish he cared for me. I can remember women saying that to me with just crying just wish he cared for me. I wish he cared for me the same the way that he does with his job. I wish he cared for me the same way he does with his golf game. I just want to be cared for. Husbands, love your wife. It's a, it's a sacrificial love. Carl Coleman was driving to work one morning. This is a true story, and he had a little fender bender with another motorist, and both cars stopped, and both got out to look at the damage, and the other driver was a woman, and it just happened to be her fault that she admitted, and she was so upset, and hers was a brand-new car. She and her husband had just got the car two days before, brand-new, drove it out of the showroom, and all she could think, and she knew it was her fault, She confessed it, but what would her husband... She dreaded facing her husband. Well, Carl Coleman was sympathetic, but they had to get the material out, the driver's license, the registration number to compare. So she reached into her glove compartment in the car to get the new registration. And the first paper to tumble out, written in her husband's distinctive hand, were these words. In case of accident... Remember, honey, it's you I love, not the car. How good is that? To hell with a car. Right to hell with a car. With metal. With stuff. With possessions. Send it right to hell. It's you I care about. There's no comparison. Does your wife feel that way? Does she know you really care for her? It's not only a sacrificial love, it's a sanctifying love. Ephesians 5, 25 tells us to love our wives as Christ loved the church, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Did you know Ephesians 5 where it talks at length about this same subject, husband's love, wives submit, and all that? Did you know it's not really even talking about the marriage itself as the priority? Because at the end of that chapter, you know what he says? He says, this is a mystery, but I am speaking of Christ and the church. He's really speaking of Christ and the church, of which the husband and wife is to be a living illustration. And as Christ loved the church, Husbands are to love their wives. As the church is submissive to Christ, the wife is to be submissive to her husband. It's a sanctifying love. Thirdly, not only a sacrificial and sanctifying, it's a spiritual love. Now, some of you won't relate to this next illustration at all, and I can understand it. It goes back years, and it's the advertisement for camel cigarettes. Um, If you wanted to be a real man 40, 50 years ago, I mean, you, you you smoked the the strong cigarette. It was, and by the way, when filtered cigarettes came out, they were for sissies. By the way, took a long time. I speak from experience, but we'll leave that one too. <laughs> Ain't going there either. But the camel cigarette, you can see it right there. It's it's the bronze-faced, muscular, macho with a cigarette dripping out the side of his mouth. And then the sign you can see up there in the white letters under camel is where a man belongs. So I want to take that little phrase there and say, where does a man belong? I speak to you, man. I speak to. Men. I told my wife she was in the earlier service. I said, I said this, or I guess it was last night. I said to her, I said, "Hun, this is going to be a hard message. You need your prayers." But listen, I said, if I say anything that I do not live out before you these last fifty-one years, I want you to stand up and say, "He's not telling the truth. He's not living it." <laughs> then I thought, well, she might be end up standing for thirty minutes. So we did away. <laughs> We, we, we did away with that. You know, all that to say in all seriousness, all that to say, man, I'm not preaching or late. I'm not speaking down at you. I'm not even preaching to you. Trust me, I'm alongside of you. I don't have it all together. We've been married 51 years. Greatest joy of my life is being home. Hardest part of my job is when I travel overseas. I pack my schedule from 6 in the morning to 11 at night. Why? One reason. I want to get on home to Muriel. That's my my place. That's my heaven on on earth. But it's not a perfect. No one's perfect. No one's got it all together. No one comes to the point where they don't have more room to grow, right? And you, you stay with it. You don't quit. You don't give up. I'm convinced a lot of people get married, get divorced for trivial reasons because they got married for trivial reasons. jestingly say my wife and I said on the first day of our wedding, the D word, divorce, will never come up in our home. But I guarantee a first-degree murder came up several times. But <laughs> so where does a man belong? Where do we belong, Dad? He belongs praying together with his wife. A man belongs at the bedside of his children. Sitting on the bed. Reading a Bible story. Talking. Hearing what their child is saying. Listening. Hugging and kissing. And then praying. For the child. Man belongs in the driver's seat leading his family to the house of worship. Breaks my heart. For years, when I'd see a woman with little kids sitting in church, and he was out in the golf course somewhere. Ought well, not to be. Man belongs spending time alone with God and seeking in vision and direction for the family. So, man, I challenge you in the name of Christ, our King, be where you belong. Crown him with many crowns we sang. By the way, I've got that hymn selected as part of my funeral service. Can't wait to hear it sung. And I ask, is he crowned as the king of my home and your home? Paul's really saying, don't call her honey and act like vinegar. Love your wife. Let's move quickly. My time is almost gone. Relationship of parents and children, verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents and everything. This please the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Interesting, he just chooses one verse for husbands, wives, parents, children. And down there with masters, then he chooses a few verses. But it's a pithy. It's just a one sentence. This is the second relationship that relates to the children and the parents. And the first is the word to children. Now, some of you ask legitimately, so well, what is a child? At what point do you cease to become A child. The Greek word technon is a very general term. It does not specify any kind of age to it. You stop being a child biblically, it seems to me, when you establish your own independence and your own authority and you're living on your own. So once you're grown and you are now living independently, that's when you are no longer to be grown. But as long as you're in that home, then you, as I understand it, have a responsibility and that one responsibility as a child, is to obey your parents. The child who does not learn to obey his parents sooner or later will disobey all other authorities too. Teachers, authorities, police, law, government, employer. The breakdown in authority in our society is directly related to the breakdown of authority in the home. The scope of the child's obedience is in everything. The motive is this pleases the Lord. Children, let me tell you something. Whether you're a teenager or whether you're six years old or whether you're 16. Don't give your parents a hard time. Quit giving them a tough time. No one loves you unless you've got sick parents. I hope you don't. Some children do. It's not right. Child ought to be in a healthy, protective, loving environment. But it's hard being a parent, and no one loves you, children, like your mom and dad, unless, as I said, there's something mentally wrong with them. I Which I could say more. Parents, verse 21: Fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This word for father is pateras; it means parents. So it's not just the Male. It's not just the father. It's father and mother. It's parents. We don't have time again to go into let me just give quick just blip, 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 five thoughts. One, do everything you can, humanly speaking, to lead your child to Christ. Do everything you can. Spend time in prayer daily for each child. Don't ever stop. When we found out Miro was pregnant, we started praying for that child in the womb. When we found out it was a daughter, we started praying, help her, Lord. Prepare her, prepare. If you have a husband, prepare him. And then grandchildren. Support them. We put them through college, grad school. And now they're out on their own, so we thought. And they married pastors, and now I've got to support the whole bunch the rest of my life. (laughs) And the prayer burden just increases. Right, Grandpa and Grandma? when the grandchildren start coming and your children are going through adulthood and then you look back and see all the traps that were there that by God's grace you didn't fall into and you pray for your children and your grandchildren. The burden just increases. Three, become a student of your child. Know your children. See their positive and their negative bends. They got positive, they got negative. Every one of them just like their mom and dad. As I always say, in our household, when we see some negative genes going out, there you are, taking on your mother's genes again. <laughs> Four, be consistent in discipline, in love in reaction. Be consistent. It is so unfair to a child to have inconsistency. They, don't, they never know what to expect. Number five, keep the lines of communication open regardless of any situations. Listen to your children. I can tell you this as far as I know my own heart today. My children, my six grandsons could never do anything. I don't care how grievous, I don't care how bad, they could never do anything that would break the line of communication on my end. As long as there's communication, there's hope. There's hope. A listening ear and a loving heart go together. Listen to your kids. My heart goes out to kids today. Yeah, it's hard being a parent, but listen, it's hard being a kid. It's hard growing up in a bullying world. It's hard to grow up when you're treated as not the cool kid, not the good-looking kid, not the jock. It's hard. Teenage suicide now is almost like a common verbiage that you never heard 50 years ago. Keep your ears open. Listen. Listen Love with a loving heart. Be truthful, but listen. Listen to what your kid is saying. One child said to her, Father, you took time to have me, but you don't have time to listen to me. We need to listen carefully, share their feelings, frustrations, pray with them, seek to encourage them. G. Campbell Morgan, the Prince of Bible Expositors, and his wife are good examples. They had four sons. All of whom became preachers. One son tells at the time that Mr. Morgan said, Will you promise to remember all that I have taught you and the lessons I have preached? The son replied, I think I know what you mean. I will never forget that in all the days of your service for Christ, I saw the Lord Jesus in our life at home. When his son Howard, now a pastor, was asked by a reporter, with five preachers in the family, dad and four sons, who's the greatest preacher? And everyone knew they would say, Dad. He said, my mother. My mother. That says it all. I don't have to insult your intelligence. (laughs) Third is the relationship of masters and servants. You've been so good, I don't want to take advantage of it, so I'm just going to give you a sentence or two summary and let you out. Servants 22 to 25, you read about it. Now we can, by application, make this employer employee. But the interpretation is a master and a slave. That was the New Testament time. Bondslayers, servants, obeying everything. Not by way of eye service, not just when they're looking at you. As pe- Not as people pleases, but with sincerity whatever you do in your job, I'm doing it for the Lord. That's the idea. Knowing that he's keeping a record. I'm underpaid, I'm overworked, that's okay. I've got a job. I'm going to give them eight hours a day. I'm going to give them 40 hours a week. I'm going to do the best job I can. And even if I'm underpaid and unappreciated, God's keeping the books. So as an employee, you're a, to obey your boss, and he gives two reasons, negative and positive. Positive, knowing the Lord will reward. Negative, if you don't, you're going to be disciplined. Let's move on to the final. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly. In other words, treat them fairly as God treats you. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now when you put the whole chapter together, what you have is you have a new man in Christ, identified with Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension. He's now living his life, so he's seeking those things that are above. He's putting off the old man, he's putting on the new man. He has the peace of Christ, he has the the, the principles, the word of Christ, and he has the name of Christ. Now he's going to obey his role as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as a child, as an employee, as an employee. Christian family life is a work of the Holy Spirit by God's grace in the lives of those who seek his peace, his principles, and his person. Would you stand with me, please? And we're going to pray, and I'm going to dismiss you. That's how we stand. I can tell you this in closing. There's a lot of folks here, men, women, godly people, who would love to come alongside of you. I do know this. I do know this. Without knowing it, I know it, if that makes sense. There's a lot of problems here in the homes. I know that, and yet I don't know who you are. There's a lot of pressure. There's nothing wrong with saying we need help. That's why we have the body of Christ. That's why we have it. A lot of people here, I think, who would love to come alongside of you in confidentiality, help you if you need help. And the person that wants to help you the most You know who it is, right? Not something that's missing, someone. The Lord Jesus. Dismiss us, Father, with your blessing. Bless every family unit here. Single people, divorced, widows and widowers, couples, parents, children, employers, employees, to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, Amen. amen. Thanks.